to help you out. There's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. Unless you're in the front row, then just, you guys are big enough, just reach down like this, grab that Bible, right back over. It's page 1012, and uh, that will help you as you follow along. And uh, we'll bring you up to speed, even if this is your first time uh, with us as a faith family. So welcome to the book of James. Uh, Here's the book of James, what we've been saying James is about. Uh, Do I have to maybe address this issue of uh, children? Children, man, we are so glad you're here with us. We're going to hopefully bring this down for you. For the next two months, you're with us. This month of August, you're in the sanctuary. September, we're out in the field. You're with us. Okay, then October, Bible Explorers kicks back up again, and uh, you'll be dismissed. But right now, there's coloring pages out there. You can take sermon notes. You can ask your mom and dad questions. Uh, all of that is great. We are excited to have you in the service, and so many of you do a great job at that. So if you're crying, you're fussy, you're making noise, fidgeting, it's all right. We'll work with you. It's a long time, all right? But here we are, the book of James. We're going to do an overview. Here is what he's been writing about. He is concerned about the church, that they would be whole, that the church would be mature, that they would be single-mindedly living out this vital, living, active, transformative faith. So let's remind ourselves of where we've been. And as we think about James and the whole book, I want to give you a picture, kids, and maybe adults can follow along too. Uh, I'm from Northern Virginia, D.C., and so all of our field trips were into the nation's capital, and we had some of the best chances to go and see some glorious things. And uh, I think James reminded me a little bit this week of some of the museums that I've been a part of. So I want you to think of the book of James like an art exhibit, okay? James is the master of illustrations, If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you really like Paul because Paul is just the quintessential, the best at keeping a sustained argument going. He can write Ephesians 1 as one sentence and just keep it going. And some of you like that. But James is this master illustrator. He illustrates more than any other New Testament writer because he wants to capture your imagination. He likes drawing, kids. He likes pictures. And so he's going to teach us in James by being an impressionistic artist. You know, they're they're quick. They're lightning sketches. You get the gist of them, but right when you look at one, he's ready to move on to the next. You're not really staring at too much detail, but he knows that pictures inspire Pictures can captivate your imagination. And so James, as a pastor, believes, you know what? How am I going to get my audience to follow with me? I'm going to impress my truth with imagination. I'm going to let your mind go to places so you can see what it is to live this out. And so he wants to move his church from being hearers only with their ears to doers. And what's the link, he thinks? An imagination. That says this is how it's going to be lived out in concrete, real terms. James wants us to move from the theoretical to the theatrical. Theoretical, you just talk about it. Theatrical, you live it out. You put on the costume, not as a fake, okay? You're you're really in the play, and you live it out. He wants you, church, to go from storytellers about what God has done for others to become story dwellers what God has done for you, and how that lives out in this context, not just the ancient Bible days. So James says, you know what, memorizing God's Word, that's a good thing. But I don't want you to impersonate Bible characters by just reciting their lines. Okay, that's okay to just begin somewhere, okay, and so maybe you have to imitate for a little bit. But James wants you to be so saturated with the Bible storyline, that you are actually now free to improvise the unfolding drama of redemption that you've been caught up in. It's not just what Jesus did with his 12 disciples. It's as you read that, you begin to get the gist of creation, fall, redemption, where the story is moving, that you can put yourself in it, and now you can act out the mind of Christ. Right? You can actually with your hands live out faith, hope, and love. To put it kind of in terminology we use here as a faith family, James would say it this way. Discipleship is not just about following the rules. You know, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. Discipleship really is getting so that you can, right, embody the mind of Christ. 
You, you so know what he would do in each situation that you live in that you get to now act it out in faith, hope, and love. James is expecting us to go through his art gallery. And they're all still pictures that he has for us to stare at. But then he invites us to leave the art gallery and go from still pictures to now being a part of a motion picture in which we are a part of it, living it out today as a church for the world to see as part of our corporate witness to draw others in, evangelism, draw others into this great story of redemption. So let's look at his art exhibit. Are you guys ready for a little art tour? James is the curator. He set up each room. He's picked each picture. And he's going to take you on a tour. And you're going to wonder, has he read my mind? And the answer is, oh yeah. He's setting you up to feel different things in each room, to ask different questions of each picture, putting yourself in there so that with your mind's eye, you can see what it looked like for you to live this out today. Let's look at his art exhibit. The curator begins in the foyer. He invites his church really quickly with a greeting. James 1, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes of the diaspora. Greetings. Hey, glad you're here for the art exhibit. And in the foyer, he grabs the church's attention with a striking contrast of two portraits. Two portraits are in the foyer. They're going to grab their attention, and it actually signals the theme for the entire exhibit. Here's the two portraits. One is a single-minded, steadfast, mature faith, and the other is a double-minded, unstable person. We see that in James 1.4, let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking nothing. There's this resolute person. And then compared to that, in contrast, is this other person, right, who is like a wave bobbing on the sea. And verse 8 says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is a curator who loves contrast. And as you only get to choose between two pictures on the wall, the church that's sitting there looking at them begins to feel a little anxious. Because as this master curator begins to walk you through his book, he wants you to feel this tension of, wow, there's only two ways to live? There's no third option? Where's the middle of the road? I mean, these contrasts seem stark. Can I just kind of finesse this a little bit? Can I, can I have maybe a, a middle of the road option? But like his half-brother Jesus, James does not offer a third option because Jesus said what? There's only two masters. Either you'll serve the one and hate the other, you'll love the one and despise the other. Jesus says there's only two kinds of trees, trees that bear good fruit and trees that bear bad fruit, and there's only two kinds of houses. There's a house that's built on the rock. There's houses that are built on the sand. With no third option, anxiety begins to mount in the foyer. And the church looks at those portraits, pondering this question. Do we have pure, undefiled religion that is unstained by the world? Or is our religion worthless? Well, James moves him from the foyer onto the first gallery. As he walks in, the, the lights come on, and the curator has selected portraits for the church to begin to connect the dots between their talk and their walk. In this gallery, there are portraits contrasting real faith that works, risking itself out in acts of love, and a dead faith that has doctrine, but no discipleship, orthodoxy, but no orthopraxy. And so on one side of the room... There are portraits of the whores of hell, portraits of demons that believe the right thing, that have doctrine, even have emotion, don't submit their will to the Lord. On the other side of the room, there's familiar faces of Abraham and Rahab, heroes of the faith. They're all described in James chapter 2. But while the church can recognize that there's a world of difference between the world that they inhabit now and the world that Abraham and Rahab inhabited, or even the spiritual world the demons inhabited, when they're looking at these photos, these portraits, it almost feels like they're looking into a mirror. It's drawing them in. And they're beginning to ask, wow, is my profession of faith out of whack with my practice of faith? They progress on to the second gallery, and the contrast continues. 
In James chapter 3, the double-minded, immature person is now displayed as this tongue that brings forth blessings and cursings. Not only has the curator been able to read their minds, now the church begins to feel that this curator James, this pastor James, has even been eavesdropping on their conversations. All of a sudden, they don't really feel they're at an art exhibit. They actually feel that they're at a doctor's visit, and all they have on is their birthday suit. Yeah, they're feeling exposed. A cover-up faith is revealed as Dr. James points out all of the inconsistencies in their life of faith. And James is saying, hey, you want to be a consistent Christian? We have to speak about the tongue. James 1.26 says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. And so James really spins from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, at least verse 12, in talking about the tongue. Jesus also taught that our words are a barometer of our spiritual condition. Matthew 12, 36 through 37 says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words they will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So James has a whole gallery about the tongue. And there's more lightning impressionistic portraits in this gallery than any of the other galleries that are in the exhibit. There's portraits of a very strong horse being guided by a bit. There's this huge ship on these strong winds of an ocean being controlled by a tiny rudder. And then with the perfect lighting that all art museums have, don't you wish you had that in your house? You have that glow that comes from this forest that's ablaze, all because of a tiny little spark. And they're looking at these portraits, and the church is beginning to feel what tremendous power the tongue has. Uncontrolled, the tongue can destroy and devastate human life. Does that seem pretty relevant today? At this very moment, we are enveloped, right, with protest movements that show the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue can destroy rational thought. The power of the tongue can make people behave like idiots. Upset society, bring misery to many, and inflict wounds on people who might be of a different color or of a different political party, but are still made in God's image, James says. James says these things ought not to be so. For what happens in man doesn't even happen in nature. In God's natural world, it is completely unnatural to have a fig tree that bears olives, grapevines that produce figs, and a saltwater pond that yields fresh water. God's natural world obeys His laws better than the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. And so, the perfect man... The mature man, the complete man, James says in James 3, 2, should not make any mistake in what he says. There needs to be a connection between our profession and our practice, our beliefs and our behaviors, our doctrine and our discipleship, our walk and our talk. Do you have that connection? Many Christians find it difficult relating what they read in Scripture, what you hear in church to everyday life. How do you connect Sunday to Monday? There are Christians that believe the Bible, Christians that are willing to defend the Bible, that are still able or unable to connect what authentic discipleship looks like in their current lives. So what's needed to connect the biblical context, right, the biblical text to your present context? What's needed to connect the Bible storyline to your everyday life? James gives us the answer in the form of a question. Look at James 3. Verse 13, if you're new to using a Bible, James 3, the large numbers of the chapter, small numbers of the verses, James 3, 13. What's needed to connect the biblical text to our everyday context? James says, who is wise and understanding among you? What is needed to connect the Bible 
with your life and living it out, James says we need wisdom. Wisdom is discerning how things fit together, the way the individual parts connect to the whole. Wisdom really is just that joy and that ability to be able to see and to build relationships of all kinds of things. One of my favorite board games that we used to have, I don't think we have it anymore, was this game called Tribond. They gave you like three words, and you had to figure out how are these words possibly connected? And it was kind of fun to figure out, like, what do all these things have in common? And they would be really obscure. But that's the idea of wisdom. You're able to connect things. It's not just knowledge of the facts. It's actually knowing what to do once you have the facts. How does what I know impact what I need to do? It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to know how that relates to everything else. So let me put it to you this way. I got this from Michael Foos this week on our staff meeting via Zoom. Michael Foos said this, Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that a tomato doesn't go in a fruit salad. Amen. Hire them. I thought that was pretty good, right? I mean, that was memorable. I even showed that with my neighbor this week. And he was like, huh, I have to chew on that one. Like, you know, really, yeah, so, all right, no pun intended. No, I, that, that, yeah, but it was, okay, but it wasn't intended, all right. Wisdom is knowledge related. Look at verse 13b. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom isn't just what you know. Wisdom is what you show, right? It's not just theoretical. It's theatrical. Wisdom has to be lived out. It's not just knowledge in a classroom. It's how does what I take in the classroom and live it out. It's, it's the art of living well in God's world. Fun definition. Wisdom is the art of living well in God's world. Wisdom is an art. So to keep wisdom from being so theoretical or, or esoteric, James, our curator, James, our guide, draws our attention in James 3, verses 13 through 18, to two family portraits. And he personifies wisdom. Sounds a lot like Solomon, doesn't he? Wisdom personified. This woman in the streets who's crying out. Wisdom has to become a person so that we don't just think of it in this abstract way. And James gives us these beautiful portraits to help our mind's eye have this imagination. And we see two different families. As we look at these portraits and we look at the two different families, James is really giving us a choice between false wisdom and true wisdom. Between earthly and heavenly devilish or divine, that's the choice he gives. And when we compare these two portraits, we can kind of work backwards. These family portraits, we can see some family resemblances. Oh yeah, they belong in that family portrait. And oh yes, they certainly belong in that family portrait. And they really don't mix. They're completely different. And we see that each family portrait has its own unmistakable origin, a common source of where they come from. So let's just go ahead and notice here in verses 14 through 16 where worldly wisdom comes from. Here's the first family portrait. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this is the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Well, where does this worldly wisdom come from? This family portrait, they, they have these characteristics, but what's the source of how they all look the same? Well, James gives us three increasingly severe descriptions. First, this wisdom has its source in that it's earthly. It's earthbound, and it just basically means this. This is a worldly wisdom that fails to consider God. And so Psalms 14, the psalmist says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You might be worldly wise, but actually only having earthly wisdom, this world's wisdom and cutting off God, you actually, the Bible says, make yourself a fool. Second, it's unspiritual. Wisdom that comes down not from above, but comes from earth, it's unspiritual. It basically just means that this is wisdom that's based upon your feelings, perhaps wisdom based upon your reason, but it's never wisdom that's based upon God's word. Again, the psalmist says this, 
the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And finally, James says this wisdom finds its ultimate source and that it's demonic. It's from the devil. It's wisdom that's from below, not from above. And here, again, I don't exactly know what this picture looks like, this portrait, this impressionistic painting, but I believe there's some colors in there. There's something that's nudging his audience to look at that and to remember Genesis 1 and 2. And to remember Adam and Eve. And that before Satan ever came on the scene and whispered in their ear, that Adam and Eve got along together in perfect harmony and joy. They knew whose they were. So they knew who they were and how to relate to each other. But then Satan comes along and plants that seed that your life would be better if you were in charge. You would really be living if you were your own God and that you got to do what you want, when you want, and even decide what you believe is right and wrong. And so listen to Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Ever since the fall, we see the devil's hereditary characteristics passed down from one generation to the next. What is those characteristics? Bitter jealousy, verse 14, and selfish ambition. Two times, James says that this family has the resemblance, the characteristics of being jealous. Jealousy makes me picture this family portrait as a family that is not full-grown, that is incomplete, that is immature. Jealousy is a sign of immaturity. Think about the property laws of toddlers. You know the property laws of toddlers, don't you? If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I take it from you, help me out. It's mine. Okay, yep. If I had it a little while ago, if it's mine, it was never yours. If I'm building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, and if I think it's mine, it's mine. And have we ever really grown up? The immature never get out of that mindset. It's jealousy. And when you look closer at this hellish family portrait, you'll notice there's a set of fraternal twins. Two different faces, but the same heart. You know, selfish ambition is the twin to jealousy. You have to look close at this family portrait because this family is not standing together. Oh, no, no, no. They're not one big happy family. When you have selfish ambition as one child and jealousy as the other child, man, they are separated. They're just told to be there. You know what they have? They have envying eyes looking at each other. Their backs are probably torn to each other. Their arms are crossed. Each of them have their foot up on a pedestal to probably say, I'm the one leaning forward. And after the family photo, after the portrait's painted, if you were to show it to them, where do you think their eyes would go? To what they look like. Oh, you know, you didn't get that right about me. I, I should be a little bit more front and center, don't you think? I don't know if you got the right side there, how, how that looks. You see, putting yourself first is a family characteristic of earthly wisdom. Selfish ambition, jealousy, demonic, man, it is an ugly family. Unhealthy, stunted in growth, not unified, but divided, staining everything and everyone. And as you look at that, James wants his audience to ask this question. What happens when the whole world eats the feast of folly from below? Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be this fruit, disorder in every vile practice. Think about the fruit of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Disorder, every vile practice. 
Do you know the word disorder there is the exact same root word that we got in James 1.8, unstable in all his ways. It's the same word for restless in James 3.8. The tongue is a restless, unstable evil. It's really not that complicated. When you operate under this devilish programming of bitter jealousy, how you see the world, how you imagine things, what looks plausible to you, what makes sense to you is this. Every single person is an obstacle in my way to getting what I want. That's how you look at the world. Does that seem to make sense of most of the earthly wisdom that we see? Everybody is an obstacle getting in the way of what I want. When we put ourselves first, we actually are the fools because we set a trap for ourselves. You know, when you cut yourself off from God, not putting Him first, but putting yourself first, you lose touch with reality. You cut yourself off from reality and you behave the fool. We don't know whose we are, so we don't know who we are. I have no idea why I'm here. I don't have the wisdom to know what I'm made for. You see, before you can answer the question, of what is the good and beautiful life that wisdom could help me get. Before you can ask, what is the good and beautiful life, you have to ask this question, what is my life for? And if you don't know what your life is for, it will leave you tremendously unstable, insecure, desperately searching for your value and your identity in comparison and competition with everybody else. You get that? I'm trying to say that again. If you don't know what your life is for, it will leave you unstable and insecure, searching for your value and your identity, all based upon comparison and competition. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He put it better than I ever could. Listen to what he says. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich, clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich, equally clever, equally good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Ouch. James has shown us the origin of worldly wisdom, hell itself. The hereditary family characteristics, devilish pride shown in jealousy and selfish ambition. And the fruit, quarrels, division. Even next week, James chapter 4, war. <sighs> but true wisdom is not like this. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. James says the same thing. But wisdom from above is pure than peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here's the point. When wisdom is skillfully, artfully practiced, your life is beautiful. When wisdom is skillfully practiced, beauty is the result. And so James kind of contrasts that family portrait from hell with this heavenly family portrait, trying to get you to sit there Stare at those portraits, envision yourself as part of those families, and say, where would I end up? Is that the family I want to be a part of? Do I want to be drawn into that family? Can people recognize which family I'm in? I think that we could go through the list here in verse 17, but I think our time would be served better by just seeing all of those attributes almost like individual people in the family portrait, rising together to make this beautiful family. They are in right relationship to each other. True wisdom is always relational. 
True wisdom compared to the false wisdom of the world is always relational. As opposed to disorder, divisiveness, and quarrels and wars. Look, they have peace because they're pure, they're gentle, they're open to reason. They can change their mind. They are full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. This family's not devouring each other. They're not against each other. They're not always in conflict. They're not disengaged and cold and removed. Wise people are peacemakers. They're able to develop relationships with people, reconcile people, and bring peace. And so when wisdom is skillfully, artfully practiced, beauty is the result. You can step back from this heavenly family portrait and go, man, what a beautiful family that is. But don't be mistaken. No one is naturally a part of this family portrait. Did you notice that? This wisdom has to come down from above, which means this. This wisdom isn't native to anyone. No one gets to be a part of this beautiful family. I know that sometimes you get those Christmas cards, you go, oh, of course, they're the beautiful family. Of course, they have it all together. No. No one gets to be a part of this family portrait. It has to be received wisdom that isn't in us. It has to come down from outside of us because God alone is wise. And those that are humble can receive that wisdom and be brought into this family because it is received with meekness and it's the implanted word which brings forth this new life. Read James 1. True wisdom is not natural. It's not natural to any of us. So here's the question. Who needs wisdom this morning? Everyone. 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 But may I address our young adults for a second? It's in our adolescence that we question, do I really believe what I've been taught? Am I going to follow the path, the examples my parents laid down for me? Or am I going to chart my own path and go my own way? That seems to be the question that young people ask. You're on the cusp of launching your life, and you get to make your own decisions. And the question you have to answer is, which compass are you going to use? Which portrait of wisdom are you going to live out? Who's going to guide you? Young people, are you going to be guided by the conventional wisdom of this world? Are you going to be taught by popular culture? You're going to be guided by the opinion of the crowd? How about this one? You're going to be guided by your own desire to maintain, prove, defend, guard, and exalt your own independence now that you got it. Are you going to be guided by the wisdom that comes from God? Young people, this is a loving warning to beware of short-term thinking. I'm not saying that if you go with the crowd, you won't have fun. I'm not saying if you don't go by the world, you won't get ahead. But what I'm saying is all the other imaginations of what the good and beautiful life is apart from God, you delete him, you get him out of it, it is fanciful, futile, and foolish. My young friends, your sin is lying to you. The Bible says it's the very nature of sin to deceive you. Hebrews 3.13, do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which means this, young person, you can walk around completely deceived about who you are, the world you inhabit, and others that are around you. And James, and me as your pastor, and your faith family here is saying, watch out. Watch out. You don't live in a neutral universe, okay? We lived in a morally charged universe that is electric with right and wrong. Eventually, your deeds will bring appropriate consequences. Paul put it this way. You will reap what you sow. And you say, I know, I know, I know, Pastor Josh. 
And the reason why we say, I know, I know, I know, it's like a kid, right? I have a couple of them. And sometimes when I say, hey, don't forget to get out the trash. I know, I know, I know, Dad. You know what, we know what that really means? When you used to take out the trash and your kid says, I know, I know, you know, you know what they're really saying? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Because if they knew, they would be what? They would be doing it. And you're here at church, and you're saying, I, I know, I know, I know, I know I should be wise. But you're not really good as an adolescent of thinking of long-term thinking. You think you have all the time in the world, that you can escape the consequences, that you can change when you want on a drop of a dime, and it's not true. James wants you to go from being hearers of the word, I know, I know, I know, to being doers of the word. My precious young adults who I hold in my heart, how are you battling short-term thinking? If you value your life, battle short-term thinking with the gospel. The gospel sets you free and casts everything in its new light. And you say, Josh, I, I believe the gospel. Yes, some of you do believe the gospel, but you are not living and drawing on the wisdom that it offers you. Again, C.S. Lewis, I think, hits the head on the nail with another portrait. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. The sun, the S-U-N. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe the sun. Not only because I've seen it risen, but it's in its light that I see everything else. So what does he really mean there? What is he trying to say? It's one thing to believe in the sun, but it's quite another thing to see everything else in its light. And we might say, we believe in the gospel. But it is quite an art to see everything else in your life in the light of the gospel. How does this, what I am doing tomorrow, impact Christ's death, resurrection, and return? Because pretty soon, young people, it will not matter whether you are male or female, slave or free, young or old, popular or ostracized, rich or poor. It will just matter whether you are saved or perishing in Christ. How are you battling short-term thinking? True wisdom that comes down from above corresponds with reality and it will make your life beautiful. That's why Solomon says wisdom is so valuable. Listen to Proverbs 8.11. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Why is wisdom so valuable, church? What good is it to have money if you don't know what to use it for? What good is it to have good health and good looks, young people, if you don't know what your life is for and what your body is for? Young people, are you in touch with reality? True wisdom always relates to reality. Do you know what story you are caught up in? Philosopher Alistair McIntyre says it this way, stories so shape our self-understanding that we cannot answer the question, what ought we to do, until we have answered the prior question, of which story am I a part? In other words, we have to view our everyday life, our story, in light of the story of Jesus. And that requires wisdom, seeing how things fit, making if-then connections. Let me just walk you through that and we'll wrap it up. If-then connections, that's what wisdom does. When you believe that Christ, and that's the culmination of God's wisdom, is the cross and what he has done changes history. And you begin to look at that and you go, wow, if God is holy, then why am I living like that? That's a wisdom connection. What I know God is holy. And then it dawns on you. Light comes on. True knowledge comes down with reality. Then why am I living like this? If Jesus really died for me on the cross, I know that. I've been to church. I've read it. Then why am I mad? Why am I sad? Why do I feel superior? 
Why do I feel inferior? If he really died for me, the God of the universe thought enough of me to die for me, then how could I ever feel inferior? I got the attention of the king of the universe. How could I ever feel superior because I got saved the same way everybody else did by grace alone? If, then, true wisdom, you know who you are, where you're going, how to get there, all because you know whose you are. And that will express itself in a beautiful life. True wisdom makes your life beautiful. And young people, it does not come in a cream, and it does not come from the gym. What young person doesn't want to be seen as beautiful? Not for what they look like by a cream or a gym, but because of how you behave, living rightly in God's world. Wisdom, the art of living well, for a beauty that goes beyond skin deep. The fool rejects wisdom, and the simple will not commit to it. Proverbs 1.22, how long will you simple ones love your simplicity? Sounds a lot like our times, young people. You know, I'm finding more and more young people don't like to text back and commit to seeing me or doing something with me. Probably because I'm old and pastor, and why would they want to see me? But you know what I also think it is? They just want to keep their options open until the very last minute. Until something else better comes around than hanging out with Pastor Josh, and I'm pretty low on that list. I know that. But how long will you just kind of keep your options open, thinking that you can live by the world's wisdom and navigate consequences before you say, you know what, I should be active in pursuing heavenly wisdom. So let me ask you, everyone has this choice. Will you commit yourself to attaining true wisdom? No one can make you, but you have the most to lose. Let's pray. I'm going to invite... Mark, my friend up, and Dan DeHart, they're going to guide us in prayer as we prepare for communion. So Mark, would you come up and pray? And then Dan DeHart will pray after that. Thank you so much, friend. Uh, Pastor Josh has asked me to lead us in a prayer of confession and repentance uh, based upon the passage in James that he just preached on. So would you pray with me? Father God, you are wise. Your wisdom is pure and peaceable gentle. Your wisdom is open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We are grateful that you are wise in these ways. If you were wise but evil, we would have no hope, and we would suffer under your rule, and you would outwit and outsmart us for our destruction. You would be a cunning God who would mastermind our downfall. Thank you for being wise and loving and that you offer to share your good wisdom with us, making us wise as we trust in you and follow you in meekness. You offer a harvest of righteousness for those who live in peace and make peace. So often, though, we have not followed the path of wisdom. We prefer the wisdom of this world. We pridefully perceive ourselves to be clever, insightful, smart, and wise, but our wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We boast and are false to the truth. Our wisdom is so often characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. We think we are wise by putting ourselves first, fiercely guarding those things we hold so dear, my money, my time, my reputation, my feelings, my dreams, my preferences. We clamor after preeminence and prosperity and position, promotions, plaudits, and popularity. We want to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, and rewarded. This earthly wisdom of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy have led to disorder in every evil practice in our lives. We confess this sin, and we are sorry. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Renew us in the Holy Spirit. Enable us to seek you and love your wisdom. Thank you that you forgive us and enable us to walk in fellowship with you so that we can enjoy this meal in your presence. Amen.
Would you join me again in prayer as we consider confession? <clears throat> Eternal Father God, as we come to worship you this morning, <clears throat> um, we have to ask the question, <clears throat> how can sinful man even approach a holy God? Father, we so often seek you because we, we just desire the gifts. How different might it look if we desired you alone, apart from any gift? We so often ask for the wrong things because we seek comfort, but you demand purity. How often are we willing to trade one for the other? God, you so often do your work through us as we go through some difficult times. And yet when difficult times come, the first thing that we do is try to get out of them as quickly as we can, and we forego the work that you intended to do in us. Father, as we come to the table this morning, you tell us to examine ourselves. Lord God, help us to see clearly. Help us to see that in spite of whatever we have, whatever comfort we live in, whatever we try to do, that apart from you, we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Father, as we just heard in the sermon, we are reminded that Jesus came to give us life and to give it to the full. You desire your best for us. And we are so often willing to settle for less if it's easier. God, help us to be willing not so much to commit, but to submit. To submit to your will and your gentle sculpting hand as you continue to shape us into the people that you intend for us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me as we uh, renew our church covenant, the life of wisdom that brings peace, brings gentleness, brings unity. Remind ourselves that in Christ, because he's forgiven us, he also gives us the power not only for pardon, but his grace gives us power to live this out. And so we're going to read this together out loud, and then we'll take communion as one. Would you read with me? We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. Amen. You may be seated. It's a wisdom that's from above that we have to receive and a wisdom that we get to be in the drama to act out. And so as we covenant together in that, we now get to come together into this story. Jesus Christ was uh, the greatest storyteller. Storyteller. Wisdom is relational. And the only way that we would actually know this God as if this God condescends to us. We don't relate to him as if like a first story apartment dweller relates to somebody on the second story. Like they live above us. Okay, so he's the big man upstairs. No. He, if we were to know him, it's not just that he's just above us. It is so out of this world that someone once said that if he was going to make himself known and his wisdom known, that he'd have to write himself into the story. It would be like Hamlet trying to get to know Shakespeare. There's no way he could do it unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And here at Communion, we see not just the footprints of God's wisdom. In communion, we see the masterpiece of God's wisdom, that Jesus Christ, who became our wisdom for us, wrote himself into our story. 
And he lived out the good and beautiful life, right? Living skillfully, artfully, rightly in God's world in submission to him. And in God's wisdom, right, he was able to reconcile, right, wisdom, to connect things that are completely unable to be connected. How could God be holy and yet still bring sinners like us in? How could God be loving and still uphold his law? And in his wisdom, beyond what any mind could fathom, he made a plan with Jesus to reconcile God and man, breaking down that middle wall of separation. So we come to this table seeing Christ, the masterpiece in James's art exhibit, wisdom personified. It's actually what that heavenly portrait looks like. And so when we get brought into that family and we keep that church covenant, we look like little Christ. And so today, if you can remember a time in which you were brought into this story because of what Christ did for you, and his masterpiece of life and work and death, substitutionary atonement on the cross for you, and you can take communion with us and remember that you are an active participant in story. You are not just attendees at church. You are going to take the bread. You're going to take the wine. You're going to actively eat it and drink it. Do you know whose story you're a part of? Do you know what part you play? And do you have the wisdom to see all of your life out of this time in which we are to do this in remembrance of him until he returns? Because doing this, we, not me, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And living with true reality that he is coming back as a judge is how you will have true wisdom to live a good and beautiful life. If it never has happened to you where you can say that you've submitted to God's wisdom, that you've acknowledged that your pride has kept you from God's wisdom, then just let the trace pass. There is no saving value. We do this to remember and to rehearse the story that we've been caught up in. I invite you to do that with us today if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior.